Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May 27, 2016, and this is episode 1796 of the Survival Podcast. And of course, it's Friday, 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 time for the Monster Show of the Week. That is the Expert Council Q&A show, and I've got some great stuff up for you this week. Here's what we're going to hear about today. Uh, we're going to hear about dealing with depression from Doc Bone, specifically trying to do it without, over the, uh, without pharmaceuticals. We're going to hear about functional EDC. How do you carry your EDC without looking like Batman? From Brian, Back, Brian, Back, Brian Black of ITS Tactical. Uh, we have the right way and why a bee smoker works from the bee whisperer Michael Jordan today. Then we have a question for Tim Glantz about military trailers, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of military trailers. And there's a lot more bad and ugly than good when it comes to these trailers that Tim's going to answer a question about. And that may, may save, save some of you from making some mistakes. If you do decide one still works for you, I'm going to tell you two stories that involve one guy that hurt himself twice working on these trailers that might save you from a different type of pain rather than you know regretting the purchase, but regretting doing something to yourself like almost taking out your eye or giving yourself a concussion. Yes, this was one guy, two separate incidents, same type of equipment. Uh, next up, dealing with high blood pressure in the natural way from Gary Collins. That's something that does affect about a third of all Americans. And then proper pasture management for uh, pastured poultry. I mean, how tall should your grass be that you're putting your birds on? That's something to think about. And uh, what about stocking up with sanitation items in case the shit hits the fan, either for you or widespread? Uh, being able to keep everything clean and safe and protected and healthy in your home when you are down and out financially or you just can't get stuff. How do you do that? We'll hear about that from Erica Strauss. And then I have a story for you at the end showing you the continued rise of the machines and my thoughts about automation in the future to wrap up the show. Then I have a great song to close out, which is about the advancement of technology, but it's about, oh, I guess it's almost 20 years old now. Uh, maybe not quite, maybe 15 years old. It's from one of my favorite singer-songwriters, and it's dated as hell in some ways. But yet, it could be it could come out today with just a few word changes. And we'll hear that. To kick off or to, to, to finish off your Friday and send you into hopefully a great weekend. With that, before uh, I get into uh, answering or getting the expert counsel to ask your, answer your questions, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. 
And with that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1796, because the episode 1796. We actually have one story today, and it's probably because Alex knew there was no reason to write a second one, because he knew I'd read this one. George Washington's farewell address. We do have some little bullet points and other news. Macrobiotics are the art to prolong one's life. Christopher Hulford coins the word macrobiotic. He has given a professorship at Jena College in Germany. Out of 900 students enrolled in, at the college, 500 attend his class. The first prisoner of war camp. Great Britain has taken a lot of prisoners in the war against France, so they build a prisoner complex to hold them all, the first of its kind. Napoleon is kicking Italy's backside. The general has married Josephine, which has helped him politically. He is in his 20s. He's appointed commander-in-chief of the French forces in Italy. He's a ball on fire, and he loves Josephine, but not her little dog. It bites. All right. So let's read George Washington's farewell address. President George Washington had his farewell address ready a long time ago, but he was convinced to take one more term as president. The nation needed time to stabilize. His second term comes to an end. He offers advice and a warning not to consolidate the powers of government. The powers are kept separate because, with the best of intentions, close alliances and friendships will lead to de despotism every time. The same rule applies to foreign friendships, favoring one nation over the other. It is a subtle seduction that creates enemies amongst nations not favored and would force America to support another nation's interests when it might not serve America's own. As the war on religion rages in France, he reminds Americans that all religions are different shades of the same principle that should guide government. Finally, he begs God's forgiveness and the nation's indulgence for his mistakes. Though, in reviewing the incidents for my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error. I am nevertheless too sensible of my own defects not to think it possible that I have committed many errors, whatever they may be. I fervently beseech the Almighty to avert or mitigate the evils of which they may tend. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them with indulgence, and that after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion, as myself must soon be to the mansions of rest. George Washington, 1796. My take by Alex Shrug. George Washington also warned against government debt, oops, and building too large a military establishment. That warning reminded me of President Eisenhower's farewell address in 1961. We owe that man so much. He warns of the military-industrial complex, which is the military bureaucracy coupled with the arms industry, We need their services, but we should not take counsel of their fears. We must verify what they tell us because every concession made for our safety erodes our freedom. FYI, here's a quote from Eisenhower's farewell address and a link to the edited version of YouTube's uh, Eisenhower video clip. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwanted influence, whether sought or unsought by military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic process. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Oh, how far we have fallen. These two men were very similar. Eisenhower was actually a, a, a quite astute student of Washington's both tactics and philosophy, as any general of his time would have been. 
Um, and I think the most important thing in Eisenhower's warning isn't so much the thing you have to fear, but the thing that would keep it in check if it existed. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing. Let it go there. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry. We have neither. We have neither an alert citizenry nor a knowledgeable citizenry. No, we do not. And you know we don't. And you wonder why they would dumb you down. When I say things like that on the air, I say, you know, they're dumbing us down. They're making us dumber. They're doing it with our food. They're doing it in the education system. They're doing it in every way they can. People always think that's conspiracy theory. To, to, to look at something logically and extract with logic from it a motive of control is not conspiracy theory. It's freaking logic. And if you want to make a case to me that they're not dumbing us down, then prove to me that we have an alert and knowledgeable citizenry. I will leave that as my burden of proof for anybody that says we're being dumbed down is conspiracy theory. We're being dumbed down by the media. We're being dumbed down by the programming of the media. You know they call it programming? I can program a computer while well, the media programs society. We're definitely having programming instilled in our children by the government education system. And the goal is more power for them, more money for them, and less for you and me. The more things change, the more they change. Isn't it interesting as well that Washington, in his farewell, says, I apologize for anything I did wrong. And though I don't think there's anything I could point to that I did through malice or intent that was improper... I'm too smart a person to think that I got it right. Does that sound like anybody running for office today? Does that sound like anybody that wants to lead your country today? Does that sound like anybody in government today? It does not. And it will not. Because it is only through an alert and knowledgeable citizenry that we can compel such behavior in our government. And frankly, friends, we don't have it. We just don't. And it's sad. And I'll say something now for Monday. Monday will be Memorial Day, and there'll be no survival podcast. There'll be a quick little blog post like I do every Memorial Day. I do take that day off. And uh, I just want to point something out. Many people don't seem to get this. Memorial Day is not a day to thank veterans. Memorial Day is not a day that we celebrate those who, who, who did their best to help keep us free. Memorial Day is a day that we remember those who died in that attempt, who fell. There's a day to thank veterans. It's in November. It's called Veterans Day. Memorial Day is to remember the fallen. And many of the fallen fell to such great ideals. And no matter what you think, I think it personally is a disgrace to those men, those women, those people, that they died for such ideals And regardless of how we think we should run the country, that as a nation, we are neither alert nor knowledgeable. My thoughts by Jack Spierko. And with that, let's go ahead and get into your first question of the day for the expert council members. Uh, this question is for 
expert council member. Let me make sure I get it right, which one I'm supposed to be on here, uh, Doc Bones, on dealing with depression and trying to do it without pharmaceutical drugs. This is a tough one because depression is a serious thing. And, hell, there's a lot of stuff to be depressed about. So, Doc, what do we do about depression? Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones, author of the brand spanking new third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, closing in on 700 pages of information that will help you succeed even if everything else fails, and now up for pre-order at Amazon.com. I'm also the founder of Doomabloom.net, where you'll find over 800 completely free posts, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness for any disaster. This week's question for the expert council is from Chad in Ohio, who asks, Is there an herbal or homeopathic method for treating depression? I haven't sought a diagnosis. Part of the reason for that is that I don't want to spend the rest of my life on pharmaceuticals. Chad, I certainly don't blame you. No one wants to be tied to taking medications when there are other options available. Almost everyone experiences depression, often due to specific stressful circumstances. We call this situational depression, or in medicalese, a stress response syndrome, and it's the most likely form of depression you'd see in a survival setting. But it's only one reason why a person may become depressed. There's depression, and there's major depression, a serious condition that can lead to an inability to function or even suicide. Sufferers experience not only a depressed mood, but also have difficulty performing simple daily tasks, like just getting out of bed. They'll lose interest in their usual activities. They'll experience extreme fatigue. They might have little appetite, or on the opposite end, they might binge eat, and they can't sleep. In severe circumstances, they might even consider harming themselves or committing suicide, either intentionally or by acting recklessly and without care for their well-being. The exact cause of major depression from a chemical standpoint is thought to be due to irregularities in brain chemicals called neurotransmitters that regulate mood and behavior. These include things like serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Now, various medications that manipulate these neurotransmitters are available by prescriptions such as Prozac, Zoloft, and others. But if you are interested in trying alternative methods, you might consider vitamin supplements like B12, folic acid, tryptophan, and omega-3 antioxidants. They may be effective in some sufferers. Let's talk about a few of them. 5-HTP is 5-hydroxytryptophan. It's a naturally produced substance in the body, and it's used in the formation of the neurotransmitter serotonin, and that's needed to maintain normal mood. There are supplements that you can use. Now, cold water fish such as salmon, sardines, and anchovies, they are a great source of omega-3 fatty acids. You can take fish oil supplements or cod liver oil. They are indeed thought to be very helpful for depression. Avoid these, however, if you're on blood thinners. SAM-E, S-adenosyl L-methionine, is a compound found naturally in the human body also that may increase levels of neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine. And several studies have found SAMe to be effective, or at least more effective than placebo, for depression. Zinc. Zinc is a nutrient that's linked with mental functions, and low levels of blood zinc are more associated with depression, and that's according to 
Nutrition Neuroscience. They believe that taking a 25 milligram zinc supplement daily for 12 weeks might help reduce depression symptoms. Now, of course, there's also the herb St. John's Wort. St. John's Wort has been used with some success in non-pregnant adults, avoid it in pregnant women and children, and it's very helpful in mild to moderate depression, so much so that it's been called the herbal Prozac. Other herbs such as passionflower, valerian, ginkgo biloba, and a number of others have been put forth as possibly helpful, but the hard data isn't there yet for most of these, so I can't say too much about that. Some lifestyle changes might also be in order to help with your depression. Here are some. Get into a routine. Depression can strip away the structure from your life, and one day just sort of melts into the next. So set an easy, easy daily schedule to help get you back on track. Say a morning walk around the block on a regular basis, that might be a good start. Set some goals. When you're depressed, you may feel like you can't accomplish anything. You have no hope for the future, and that makes you feel worse about yourself. So push back against this by setting simple daily goals for yourself. Learn some new vocabulary words. Read a few pages of a humorous book. Wash the dishes. Sweep the front porch. Simple stuff like that. Of course, exercise is always helpful. Exercise actually temporarily boosts feel-good chemicals called endorphins. It also may have long-term benefits for people with depression. Now, how much exercise do you need? Not that much. Just walking or riding a bike a few times a week can help. Eat healthy. There is no magic diet that fixes depression, but choosing healthy foods is a good idea for just about anyone and can help control weight gain for those who overeat when they're depressed. Eat a banana or an apple instead of a candy bar. Make sure you get those omega-3 fatty acids into your daily meals. Now, get enough sleep. That's very important. Depression can make it hard to get enough shut-eye, and too little sleep can make depression worse. What can you do? Make a routine. Go to bed. Get up at the same time every day. Try not to nap. Take all the distractions out of your bedroom. No computer, no TV. Block out all the noise and light you can. You'll get more sleep, and your mood might improve. Don't forget to take on some responsibilities. When you're depressed, you may want to pull back from life. Nothing could be worse. Stay involved. Have daily responsibilities, like a job that takes your mind off your issues. Volunteer if you can't work. Staying involved and having people depend on you at home or work can help you maintain a lifestyle that can counter depression. And don't forget to challenge negative thoughts. In your fight against depression, a lot of the work is changing how you think. When you're depressed, you leap to negative conclusions. You think you're worthless? Well, it's just not true. Don't forget to use relaxation methods to help. Meditation, yoga, massage therapy, music, guided imagery. These are all just some of the methods that might help. Look them up online and see if you can give them a try. Chad, I hope this helps. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Oh, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. Follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show, Facebook on our group Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, or our page at Doom and Bloom, and our two podcasts, The Survival Medicine Hour at blogtalkradio.com, and our latest, The Current Events Podcast, American Survival Radio at americansurvivalradio.com. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that. I, I think probably the biggest thing people can do to deal with depression is to be active. Um, I'd add to your routine, take a freaking walk. Take a freaking walk in the woods, but whatever it is, go do something. I, I've known many people in my life who have got into depressive states, 
And the more they close themselves off, the worse it gets. I have a family member who I, you know, I think of quite a bit who is now working a part-time job and taking college classes. And how that's going to work out, I don't know, but I know that she's a totally different person because you're not just closed in on yourself because it, it really is like a trap. Because you you don't go do something, you get more depressed, but it makes it harder to go do something. So you don't go do something, so you become more depressed, but it makes it harder to go do something. So you don't. It, it really is like that for a lot of people, and uh, it, I think it it can get into the point of like your days merging together, like Doc said as well, where tomorrow is really no different than today, and today is no different than tomorrow. So it's it's odd that routine works, but. Routine puts you through cycles and it puts you through actions and those actions lead to differences and variances. And to me, I, I really believe depression is a modern illness. It, it's, a, it's an illness of society. It's an illness of civilization. When, I, I think that when humans were living as, as hunter-gatherers, depression was probably, I don't know, if somebody was really injured and immobile, they could become depressed as a consequence of an injury right, or a situation. But when people are engaged and behaving as, as normal human beings, I don't think depression is very likely. I, I find the whole chemical imbalance that can be corrected with drugs things to be not, not true. I, I don't buy it. I don't buy that it's a chemical imbalance. Are there people who are mentally ill that have something crosswired or what have you? Yes, yeah, sure. But depression, no, I think depression is being sad all the time. I think it's what it really is. And there may be some small group of people that have some sort of thing that makes them depressed that, that you know, the drugs are the only answer for. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But I'll tell you this. I think the medication is way overprescribed. And saying, but when you take a medication, you don't feel depressed does not prove that it corrects any kind of chemical imbalance. It proves that drugs alter your state of mind and consciousness and make you feel differently. Because there's a lot of drugs that do that that we you know, call illegal. Marijuana alters how you feel. Most people actually kind of like the way they feel if they smoke a little marijuana. That doesn't mean it's correcting a chemical imbalance. People who use alcohol that you know can actually lead to greater depression, but while they're drunk, they feel sort of happy sometimes. That doesn't mean it's correcting a chemical imbalance. It means it's altering the brain. Well, if we can alter the brain with a chemical or a drug, we can also alter the brain with an activity. So I'm all about go do something, anything. Get a job you don't, even when you don't really care about, might be a good thing for some people that are unemployed and depressed. You know, go get a job at the supermarket or something like that. Just talk to people. Go out and do something. Get involved in a church or a charity group or anything, whatever works for you, but go do something. And you'll find yourself not really being very depressed anymore. Next question we have is for Brian Black about everyday carry. Brian, what's up with your everyday carry, man? Hey guys, this is Brian from ITS. I have a question today from John who asked, tell us about your basic EDC. What do you always carry with you and the why behind it? I started to really put together my EDC lately and realized you can, you can get out of hand and end up looking like Batman with a utility belt if you're not careful. Um, I completely agree with you, John. I've been there before and I try to carry based on, you know, obviously the outfit I have on too. That's kind of the most important thing to me. I, I buy stuff that has extra pockets in it um, for the purpose of EDC or everyday carry. Um, that's my first starting point. Another starting point is with clothing is that I try to buy stuff that's a little looser cut because I can feel carry, so I like to um, 
for instance, I wear I typically wear a thirty buy a thirty three or thirty four depending on um, the brand of clothing just so I can I carry appendix so in the waistband and in the appendix which is in the front. So using that is kind of my guideline for buying clothing. So um, basically just kind of going over my EDC um, from the ground up, so to speak. Um, I typically have, you know, a belt on it, whether that's a leather belt or also favor a lighter belt um, that Maxpedition makes. It's one of the best belts out there, in my opinion. It's a, it's a synthetic material, and uh, I like it if I'm going to be around heat or sweating or anything like that. It, to me, leather absorbs and stretches and uh, gets malformed, but I haven't found that with a lighter belt. And then I carry an in-cock holster on the Glock 43, and that's my concealed carry. Um, I do not carry a spare magazine with me, and, you know, granted, there's a limitation there because the Glock 43 is only a six-round magazine or seven with one in the chamber, but it is what it is, and that's what I carry. And then I have a typically either a, an automatic watch or a G-Shock for me for the watch. It's typically got a watch compass on the band. Um, got my wedding ring on, just kind of going over with, you know, what I have on it. I typically have a Fitbit on my opposite wrist for my watch. Um, I've been kind of in that uh, mode of tracking my activity level, so I've been wearing one of those lately. And then I always have a knife on me, and I carry a folder. It's an Emerson A100. Um, that's what I prefer to carry. Um, it does not have a wave feature on it. If you're familiar with Emerson, that's the feature that allows you to draw it out of your pocket and open it quickly. Um, I've just found through the knife training that I've had that that's kind of um, a detriment sometimes to the scenario that you're presented with um, in some certain cases. So, um, also, I've got my keys. Um, I use either a – I've got a blade key on my keychain right now, and that's a way to keep all my keys organized. So it's uh, kind of in a – kind of in a nice folder type configuration, if you will, and I'm going to try to get Jack a photo of all this stuff, too, so you have some piece of reference um, in, the, in the show notes for the the, uh, the podcast. So, and then I have a wallet. I typically try to carry either one of our uh, wallets that we made, which is a Hypo-On concealment wallet, and that's got a spot in it for different kind of uh, tools, entry tools, and things like that, like lockpicks. Um, and um, contrary to popular belief, they are pretty much legal to carry everywhere, as long as you're not in the act of committing a crime. So just an FYI there. I either carry uh, that Hypalon wallet or I carry some type of a card sleeve um, if I'm kind of limited on space. Um, and then in that, I've got a pair of lockpicks that I keep on me too um, pretty much at all times. So then I've transitioned to stop using my knife as, something as a tool to open boxes with. I now carry a little Leatherman squirt in my pocket that I use the blade on that for uh, to open boxes. And I've also found a little Leatherman squirt to be um, helpful in other things like having a screwdriver and um, a pair of scissors and things like that too, and a pair of pliers. So very small form factor, which I try to take into account with my EDC. Then I've got a flashlight. I carry a little 4.7s pre-on flashlight that I've made some modifications to. Also, typically, I always got a challenge coin in my pocket, one of our ITS Shield challenge coins. Typically, some loose change. Um, I started carrying a Zippo. You can hear it there. Um, started carrying a Zippo for a lighter. I always tried to have a lighter on me, but um, we made some Zippos with steel flame a while back at ITS, and I really liked carrying one of those on it. I have a insert that's a butane insert rather than the fluid that I have to fill up all the time in a traditional Zippo. And then I have a pen on me always and a notepad. Um, I carry a PI bolt from uh, Brian Fellhalter and then also a just a standard notepad um, from, I believe the company is not, but I'll have to make sure I get that correct. 
And I've always got a pack of gum in my pocket, and along with an EDC trauma kit that we make at ITS. It's got a soft UI tourniquet in it, a pair of gloves, um, and then also a pack of combat gauze, and that's kind of my trauma kit that I always have on me in my pocket. So I try to be prepared with that in that aspect, too. So in my opinion, you should know how to only take a life, but how to save one as well. So while you're taking into account your training with a firearm, also taking into account some training with medical equipment, too. Um, and then I always have some sunglasses, usually. Um, what I'm carrying today that's going to be in the photo are some gators, uh, gator magnums, I think is what they're called. But that's just a brief uh, kind of look through through my EDC. And like I said, this kind of varies a little bit depending on what I'm wearing. But, you know, right now everything that I described is in the pair of shorts that I'm wearing, and it's not cargo shorts. So I try to basically I cram as much stuff as I can in my pockets and hope for the best. So, so guys, hopefully you enjoyed the perspective, and thanks again for the question. Keep them coming. Remember to check out ITS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore your world and prevail against all www.itstactical.com. Thanks. Yeah, I got a couple uh, thoughts there. Number one, Brian sent a picture of his EDC. It's the featured image for today's post. So if you want to kind of just take a look at his EDC as it's carried, he has it all laid out um, on a, in a nice picture for you. Um, another thing is he mentions a tool in there that is called the uh, the Leatherman Squirt. And it's a pretty cool little tool. It's, it's very compact, and it provides a lot of functionality. Uh, I wanted to make sure that if you wanted to actually find it, you could find the actual one, because it's a, a product I do like. Uh, and I have a link in the show notes in the resources section to the squirt. This is exactly the one Brian carries. I actually prefer uh, a product made by Gerber. It costs us quite a bit less, actually, and I actually like it better. It's called the Gerber Dime, and I have a, a link to that product as well, so you can see both of those uh, exactly what they are. And um, I like those for the fact that you have a blade in them all, but um, pulling them open and getting a blade out and stuff, you know, I, I actually carry what I call my cruddy, my cruddy cutter, right? And I've talked about this thing before, <clears throat> but I think it is probably the best tool uh, to have for cutting boxes and stuff like that, because I don't want to take my good knife and and run it through sticky tape that gets residue on it, and then put it back in my sheath. And I, I don't want and and you know dull it with stuff like that, or to to work on something that you know like the precision cut a piece of paper that I'm cutting a pattern out of. There's better tools for that, and a razor blade works great for all that stuff. And when it's dull, you flip it around, you use it till it's dull again, and you throw it away and put a new one in it. And it's it's just simple. And I use a product called the Gerber EAB Light for exchange a blade. It's, a, it's, it's as small as you can get a, a little razor knife. I've not found anything any smaller. Uh, it does lock on extension. I do not open it with one hand. It can be done, but you can also cut yourself doing that. Two-handed open. It works as a money clip. My only problem with it is at times a little steel clip on the back of it that clips it to the inside of your pocket. Uh, especially if you use it like as a money clip, which I use mine like that a lot. Sooner or later that clip will fail. They're seven bucks though. So you take the one with the clip that failed on it, you throw a blade on it, throw it in a tackle box, throw it in a glove box, whatever, and get another one. Um, I am a big believer in you know trying to buy things that you buy once and only once, uh, but it, there's also a practical, pragmatic component to that as well. Um, on that note, when I did the last show where I talked about uh, the EAB, I had a lot of people email me different products 
that are similar to it. All of them are larger, which kind of defeats the purpose. Um, Gerber makes a, another one that's you know is as big as a small pocket knife. Um, it does give you a better grip, but it's as big as a small pocket knife. It, at least theirs, though, that the way that the blade is held is actually done fairly well. But I've tried quite a few of them, different versions of these, because I always liked this idea, and I, I tried a lot of different things in my quest for, for perfection before I found the EAB, and then I continued to do it. A lot of these products have these quick releases for the blades. I do not recommend them. I absolutely do not recommend them, because I've had the releases come loose while using the knife. And the EAB has a screw that holds the blade in. The blade is not going to come out. I guess you could cut yourself bearing down too heavy with it or something like that, but um, if you use it intelligently, that's not going to happen, and the blade is not going to come out. And the blade coming out, to me, is more of a security risk than uh, being stupid about how you use the tool. So I, I may someday find a razor knife-style folder compact tool that I prefer to the EAB, but I haven't found it yet. And I, I think Brian kind of likes the EAB, too. It just He changes his EDC up from time to time, or maybe he's decided that he doesn't need it because you do try to keep you know, the, the amount of stuff down. But I usually carry some cash on me. I usually do not carry that in my wallet because if somebody wants my wallet, they're not getting my cash. You know, uh, and and that EAB is a money clip. You know, I end up probably having one fail every six months and have to get another one. But it's it to me, it's kind of worth it. Um, and it just kind of you know that weights the cash down and stays in your pocket, so that like when you come out of the store and you have your keys and your cash in the same pocket and you have your hands full of bags and you, you grab your key fob and pull your keys out, your money doesn't go flying. That type of thing. I'm just saying. Anyway, with that, let's take the next one. The next question we have is for uh, Michael Jordan on Smoking Bees. Mike, take it away. Hey, I'm Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company out here in Cheyenne, Wyoming, taking your questions on bee apiary management, mead making, and bees in general. This question comes from Mick. I am making my second attempt at beekeeping in three years, and while all the basics are documented, one thing that I haven't found a lot of info on is smoking. I'd like a quick background on what does and why. Why does it make them calm? Does it make them leave the hive? Does it make them go away? And importantly, what exactly is good material mixed to make up smoker fuel? I've tried commercial products, as well as leaving grass, wood pellets, but I don't really have a lot of luck getting it going and keeping it going. So what should I use and how long should it take to get it going with a good solid smoke? Thanks, Mick. Okay, Mick, here's the down low on smoke. Smoke is used to calm the bees. It is a pictograph of ancient times of keepers using smoke. However, the science ex explanation wasn't really known until the 20th century and is still not fully understood of all the effects when we use smoke on the bees. I feel the bees are confused by the smoke and it breaks up the chain of command in the colony, causing the bees to regroup to see if they need to leave the hide or overcome to continue work. 
In the beginning, it was just a smoldering stick or a simple pan of burning incense that was used to smoke the bees. As time grew, many beekeepers introduced a pipe that was held in the mouth of the keepers. They would blow into the pipe, pushing the smoke over the hives to work them. Moses Quinby, the first commercial beekeeper in the United States, is credited with the invention of the modern-day single-handled smoker. This is about 1875, when bellows were attached to a tin burner. This allowed the beekeepers to handle the smoke and fume the hives with a little more control. The smoker has a lid, a barrel, bellows, and a heat guard to protect the beekeeper from getting burned when using the smoker. From what we've been seeing is smoke masks the alarm pheromones in which include various chemicals such as isopropyl acetate. And that's uh, usually given off as a warning or an alarm. It's usually released by the guard bees or bees that are injured during the beekeeping inspection. The smoke creates an opportunity for beekeepers to open the beehive and work the colony and interrupt the defensive response. Smoke also initiates, uh, initiates the feeding response and anticipation of the hive possibly moving due or, or abandon the hive due to the fire. When bees uh, consume honey, the abdomen is distended, making it difficult for the honeybees to flex and sting. So it's another reason why we smoke it. It, help, it, it kind of keeps them from stinging you. Smoking the bees suppresses the bees down into the hive away from where the keeper is working. Many people swear on using sugar bottles on the bees. Others feel that they are one with the bees and use nothing at all. Me, I feel this is part of your protective gear, and I use sugar bottles and smoke to control my bees. I smoke the bees and then sugar coat them. And then that way at least they have something to feed afterwards as they're doing this arbitrary retreat. Now... The biggest question on smoking the bees is what kind of fuel do I use in my smoker? Now, when we talk fuel, we're not talking about using a burning substance. We're talking about something that will smolder and let off smoke when pumping the bellow system. When pumping the bellow, it will allow the fuel to get air, which allows it to burn, but not necessarily burst in flames. You don't want to pump it like a smelter does when he's uh, forging metal. Uh, we don't want to flame when using it on the bees. This is known to be like a jet engine as it goes through the tube, and it can burn the bees, burn your hive, and it makes the bees' wings melt as the heat is too strong. Uh, it also allows sparks and flames to come out, and you can set fire to the land around you, causing property damage or injury. We also don't want to have ash flying out when we're pumping the bellow. When we're blowing over the hive, we don't want ash in our honey, and we don't want ash floating around in the hive because the distinct smell of smoke causes the bees to maybe to ascend and remove from the hive later on. Right? When you're using a smoker, do not gas the hell out of the bees. Uh, you just do a couple quick tone uh, smoke puffs, right, by lifting the lid, puffing it across the top, starting the breeze already to suppress masking the pheromone scent. It only takes a couple good top coats over the hive, and they should already be working there down in the hive. Um, I think also, you know, you just use that spray bottle, and you can spray that over the top of them, so when they start coming back up, they have something residual to start eating, and they won't go into alarm mode. So what is a good smoker fuel? Man, there's all kinds from the compressed paper that the bee suppliers uh, 
cell. There's natural fuel fuels that you can find when you're on site. Uh, wood pellets actually work good if you get the hive really or the smoker really burning, really good to get the wood pellets uh, absorbing the heat and starting to burn. <clears throat> now, I always come prepared when I go to the field, so I bring my own. And sometimes when I'm out in the field, I add some sage to it and pine needles as I'm feeding it as I'm going, if I have many hives that I'm working at. Sage works really good if you have natural white sage growing. The smell is phenomenal, and it burns quite well, and it smokes just like the Indians used to use, or Native Americans. They were able to use this smudge stick, and it burns very well, and some people still use smudge sticks today to do their beehives. Now, I use... uh, a little bit of incense in mine, and you can leave the incense out if you want. But I'm using it to train my bees when I work them. That my girls know when I'm using the incense and stuff. I'm usually there doing inspections, and I'm going to feed them. So uh, they're getting powdered sugar dusting over the top. They're getting sprayed with sugar water, and I'm usually filling or refilling feeders. Or I'm just going through and checking the hives. So that incense works good because they know it's just me coming. So I take a handful of newspaper from a paper shredder and I fill it about a quarter way full in the smoker to almost a third. Shredded newspaper works really good and ignites good and burns for a long time. And then I put four to six uh, incense cones on top of it. I use frankincense incense. And then I make a burning roll. The roll is an inch and a half wide piece of burlap, eight inches long, with a piece of inch and a half wide piece of denim jeans, eight inches long, added on top of it. Then I roll it up like a newspaper, kind of like a little party roll that you use for snacks, denim jean wrapped in burlap all the way through. And I stick this on top of the incense cones. And there's usually about a quarter inch of space left on the top of the smoker. This last bit I leave open so I can keep feeding it, like I said, with uh, pine needles or sage. But when I was taking my master's beekeeping course in Uganda, they would take a cube of charcoal that they had been sitting in a little bit of Zippo lighter fluid. And then that way it lights up really easy with a match. The coal is on fire, burning the rat fuel, and the coal will keep burning as long as you keep puffing the smoker, allowing you to keep feeding it, and it'll burn for a very long time. Now this mix works very well for me. It allows me to add more burlap, denim jeans, or other uh, fuel to it as needed. And it gives off a good smelling smoke that lasts a long time. I just did a class in Calhoun, Colorado with Daniel Freeman, and the smoker lasted for over two hours. A great tip for you is to keep a torch with you. The handheld nap gas used to solder copper pipes works tremendously. Get one that is self-igniting. When you're hot out, you're all suited up. You've got your gloves, your tools, and you're all sticky. (laughs) This uh, soldering... uh, Nap gas is like a godsend. Uh, When anything goes out, you just pop open the top, hit the igniter on the uh, torch, and hit it with fuel. And uh, you can relight the smoker extremely fast. Bang, you're just going back over again. It also helps you if your uh, smoker goes out and you want to stick in some more fuel. You can just hit it real quick with the nap gas and get going again. One other thing, you should always keep a few bottles of water with you. You should have them with you anyways because you're working out in the hot sun and you need water and hydration. But when you're done with the smoker, you should dig a three-inch hole about a foot deep, dump the smoker in the hole, and pull some water on it and then cover it up. 
I cannot stress this enough. You can burn down everything if you're not careful. And when you're in your car, well, you don't want to smoke yourself out driving down the road. Hey, I am the Bee Whisperer, Michael Jordan with the Bee Friendly Company, asking you to buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect, buy from a cottage industry because we all had to start someplace, and try to always be the bigger person and help your fellow man because one day you're going to need help too. Good stuff as always from Michael. Let's move on to a question for uh, Tim Glantz. Of course, Tim can answer all your questions about military surplus, uh, diesel mechanic stuff as well. Uh, he's a, it was a 63 whiskey, uh, so he's a mechanic in the United States Army. He's also chief warrant officer uh, in the United States military. Also a ham radio operator. So if you have ham radio questions, Tim would be a good one to ask about these. Today's question is about military surplus trailers, though. And uh, like I said, when Tim's done, I got uh, two quick funny stories involved the same guy near trying to kill himself working on these things. And uh, I think it'll give you a laugh on your Friday. Uh, with that, Tim, take it away on these uh, military surplus trailers. Hey, Jack and all you TSP listeners out there. Tim Glantz here from Old Grouch's Military Surplus with uh, an answer for a question from Matt in Ohio who's asking about the military M105A2 trailer and how it would compare to uh, a civilian trailer, and if there's any special considerations for buying one. Matt, let me tell you, you probably don't want an M105 series trailer. Everybody looks at these trailers, and the prices are great. I mean, it's a big old rugged military trailer, and you can often pick them up at a heck of a good price. You know, I've seen them out there. Uh, never pay more than a thousand dollars for one, and that's probably too much. Uh, you can quite easily sometimes find them under five hundred dollars. And there's a reason why. Unless you own a deuce and a half, they're not very practical. Uh, it is rated at a ton and a half cargo capacity off-road, uh, off uh, and actually more than that on-road. But, you know, a 3,000 capacity trailer, really not that much. And the trailer itself empty weighs 2,750 pounds. So already you're starting with a weight disadvantage compared to a civilian trailer. Uh, your second disadvantage, it has 920 military two-type tires on split ring wheels. The same exact wheel and tire that's on a deuce and a half. Uh, if you've never messed with them, those tires are, number one, big and heavy. Number two, not as durable as a modern tire because that is 1940s technology. Number three... If you don't have the right tools, you can't change it. And number four, even if you have the right tools, they're extremely dangerous to change if you don't know what you're doing because they can explode uh, when being filled back up and they have killed people. For that reason, it is very rare to even find a tire shop that will do them. The civilian world got rid of those you know, decades and decades ago. Uh, so you don't find them doing them. Uh, Number three, it has air over hydraulic brakes. So unless your tow vehicle has air brakes and has glad hands, uh, you're not going to have any kind of brakes. So you're going to be starting with an almost 3,000-pound trailer before you add your cargo, and you're not going to have any brakes. That's a bad plan. Uh, if I still haven't talked you out of it and you're still thinking about it, I actually have a 105 that I converted and did all the work to make it towable uh, with a civilian vehicle. Uh, and I will tell you exactly what I had to do, and I'll tell you the only reason I did that is because I was browsing the auctions a few years ago, 
And here sits this trailer, and it was the actual trailer that, as a young PFC, I used to drag around. I saw my old unit's bumper numbers on it, and I actually saw some uh, spray can paint jobs that we'd done on them right after 9-11 when those trailers were still in my old unit's inventory. And had there not been that sentimental attachment to that trailer, and I, th- I figured I will never find another vehicle that I actually used in service that I can buy, I never would have bought it. So the first thing I had to do was uh, get rid of those giant 920 tires because they're so tall. That's another thing on those. They sit so tall that if you're towing them behind any kind of pickup, unless you've got it lifted, uh, it's going to sit way too high. So the first thing I did was get rid of those 920 tires. You've got two options there. You can either find the tires that were on a military bolster trailer, the tires and wheels are 16 and a half inch, or on a military flatbed 1061 trailer. Uh, I found some 1061 tires and wheels. Of course, you have have to have three because it'd be a fool to go out without a spare, uh, especially when you've got some kind of oddball tire size like that. Uh, That set me up right at $400 by the time I got them here. the other option is if you can find one of the old Isuzu NPR trucks out in a junkyard, some of them had a 16 and a half inch wheel that would work. Uh, you're, but you're going to probably pay pretty good for that too, and you're going to spend a lot of time hunting for it. So once I did that, uh, then I had to flip the lunette over, which uh, you take the lunette, uh, the hitch ring on it, for those who don't know, don't know what a lunette is. And if you look at a picture in an M105 trailer, it's actually got a bend in it. And you can take that thing and you can loosen up the uh, lock nut on it, rotate it over so instead of being bent upwards, it's bent down to give you a lower hitch height. That will take, uh, on most of these 105s that have been sitting around forever, it'll take you about half a day because it'll be rusted and seized and you need a big giant wrench uh, and all this other stuff to get it loose and it is a pain in the butt. Uh, mine involved a lot of cussing, heat from a torch, uh, a sledgehammer, and uh, but we finally got it. Now, once you've done that, the landing leg on these will no longer work because it'll be too tall. So you'll have to remove that landing leg and put a proper civilian-sized landing leg on it. Uh, you can get a clamp-on. I've got one on mine right now, but I don't like clamp-on landing legs for a trailer that heavy, so I'm, I'm pretty soon going to actually put a weld-on on it. So you're going to spend some money there. Then you have to address the brakes. Uh, air over hydraulic brakes means there's airlines going to what's called a hydro boost uh, or hydrovac, and uh, that attaches to a master cylinder, which then pushes air to the brakes. The only way to convert those over is to buy an electric over hydraulic brake actuator. I spent about $650 for the model I got, and uh, that's about ballpark where you're going to find them. You know, $600 to $700 for that actuator. Then once you've got that actuator, you'll need to wire up the rest, wire it up with the proper civilian fitting. Then you will need to also go ahead and convert your wiring harness to your civilian plug and change the 24-volt bulbs in the lights out to 12-volt bulbs. Then you've got a trailer that you can pull down the highway and have brakes and use. And by that time you've done that, you've probably spent $2,000 or $2,500 by the time you consider the value of your time. So that cheap trailer uh, that looked like it was a good deal, not so good. Uh, Now, if you look at the military M101 series trailers, 
there is a trailer that was actually designed to be towed behind a Humvee or a pickup truck-sized vehicle. Uh, if you get the regular M101A1, it does have the older split-ring tires, the same series that would have originally been used on a Dodge Power Wagon M37. If you find an M101A2, they are much more desirable because they actually have surge brakes, so you have working brakes on it, and it has eight lug, one ton Chevy pickup rims. Uh, they are perfect for use uh, behind a pickup truck or anything else, and the only thing you ever have to do is change your wiring harness to civilian wiring harness, uh, civilian style plug, and put 12 volt bulbs into the uh, tail lights. Also on the market now are a bunch of the newer aluminum-bodied Humvee trailers, the M1101 and 1102, which are actually the identical, exact same trailer. But some Humvees weren't rated to tow as much weight as the others, so they made two different model trailers and rated them for different capacities. But the only difference is on paper, so that uh, you're not supposed to tow as much because the tow vehicle wasn't designed to tow it. That kind of twisted logic makes any sense. Those also have surge brakes. Uh, they are good to go to tow behind you know, any civilian vehicle with a simple change of your wiring and your light bulbs. They do come with the bigger 37 or 38 inch or 36 or 37 inch Humvee tires and wheels. You can take those off and convert them to a regular one ton eight lug wheel. Uh, regular wheels will fit or dually wheels will fit if you want a little narrow track. And I'd hardly recommend doing that because you eliminate a lot of weight and you make it ride uh, with a lower bed height, uh, so it's usually more level behind vehicles. And also, uh, you can do that and you can sell those uh, Humvee tires and wheels to guys building custom trucks for a lot more than it costs you to go to the junkyard and get two regular eight lugs and put some uh, tires on them so you can actually uh, offset the cost of buying a trailer a little bit on one of those M1101s or 1102s. So hope that helps and uh, answers a few of your questions. And, yeah, the, the 105s look appealing because they're always really cheap out on the market for such a big trailer. But when you look down in the reason, the what it takes to actually use them and the usability of them, there is a reason for that. Uh, the only situation where I think buying a 105 and using it in its stock form is, you know, worthwhile if unless you have a deuce and a half is if you just plan to use it around a farm or a ranch where you're towing it at low speed, full of stuff, and you're not taking it down the highway, and you're just using it to move stuff around. Uh, other than that, you know, look for one of the other model trailers because that little bit you pay more you pay to buy it is still going to come out cheaper when you look at all the work it takes to make uh, an M105 actually uh, usable for anybody in a civilian application. If you have any other questions, uh, feel free to contact me. My email is always found on my website there at oldgrouch.com. And uh, check us out. We've got a lot of uh, neat new surplus items coming in the very near future. And there uh, should be a lot of stuff that everybody will want to see there. So, Thanks a lot for the question. And, Jack, as always, thanks for the great show. All right. If that wasn't enough, let me tell you that working on these things can be dangerous. <laughs> it, uh, sometimes just because... It's tough to work on old military equipment that hasn't been serviced right, and sometimes because you can do dumb things, or sometimes a combination thereof. I have a good friend named Brad. I served in the military with this guy. Um, we both served about three years. Uh, when I got out, my medical file looked like what you'd expect a three-year medical file of a young teenage kid to look like. It was pretty thin. 
Um, it was thinner than your average spiral notebook. It didn't have much in it except a shot record and uh, my injury to my shoulder, a few things on that, and that was it. It was pretty lightweight. His looked like there were guys getting ready to outprocess, you know, with us the 20 years and going to retire, and his medical records looked like theirs. He hurt himself a lot. The boy put camouflage on. He just turned into a disaster, broke his foot. Uh, I mean, just so much he did. Uh, and two injuries involving the M105 trailer. The first one, I wasn't actually there to see it, but I did hear about it. He was up under the trailer trying to get the top off the master cylinder to check the uh, the fluid level in the master cylinder. Because there's a master cylinder uh, trailer braking system on these things. And he has a crescent wrench on it, and he's pulling as hard as he can and trying to get leverage, and the wrench just will not turn. So he ends up somehow, and where this thing is, I'm not quite sure how he did this, but he gets both feet on the frame of the trailer and two hands on the wrench pulling, not pushing. So instead of busted knuckles, he busts himself in the head with the crescent wrench almost dead smack between the eyes, laid himself out, and gave himself a concussion. He was on quarters for a couple days under observation because obviously concussions, especially to the frontal lobe, can be a severe, dangerous thing. So, again, he's done damaged himself many other ways. He jumped off a deuce and a half one time and ended up hitting his knee straight into the pumpkin on the front tire and limped around for a week and jumped out of a Humvee and broke his foot and limped around for another couple weeks. And, I mean, just... So, it's not a surprise at this point when the man gets hurt. He also cracked his fingernail one time. I had to take him to the medics. They had to do something to get this infection out under his fingernail, and he passed out. <laughs> and he's a good guy, don't get me wrong. And he's, The thing is, he doesn't hurt himself unless he's in uniform. He's crazy. So eventually he's, he's working on one of these trailers, and this was one he had coming, even more so than the master cylinder. And he's out doing something with it. I have no idea what. He comes walking up to me, and he's got his hand over his, his head, and he's got this little trickle of blood going down his nose. And I'm like, what did you do? He's like, I go to the clinic. Can you go put my tools away for me? It's out by Echo, whatever, the name of the you know the, the truck we're working on, or the trailer he was working on. I'm like, yeah, I'll put your tools away. What did you do? He goes, I don't want to say. I'm like, what did you do? Well, he had a cotter pin on a cable he was trying to get out, and he had a screwdriver up against it because it wouldn't come out, and he's hitting the base of the screwdriver. Screwdriver goes flying, hits him. It hit him about, if you take your finger, run it up to your nose to where it dents into your forehead, and it can go either way to your left or right to your eye, and you go just on the inside where you're touching the corner of your right eye, it hit him just off that corner of the right eye. I mean, if it would have been a millimeter or two to the, to the right, he would have took his eyeball out with it. And uh, I could go and probably do a podcast called The Injuries of Brad and just regale you with what this guy did to himself. The reason I tell you that story, though, is it's all easy to laugh at somebody doing something like that. We all get in situations when you're working on old vehicles, especially where something has not been serviced like Tim was talking about, and you got to get it off and using a torch and beating on it. You get into situations where... You almost have to take some risk to get what you want done done. And you got to think about it because, you know, hitting yourself in the head with a crescent wrench, knocking yourself out when you're 19 years old is one thing. Doing it when you're 50 years old is different. It can have a completely different impact, literally, on your life at that point. And losing an eye is bad news. 
trust me, I'm a guy that basically has one good one. I really worry about my eye. If I, something happens to my eye, I have a problem. If it happens to my other eye that doesn't really see very good, I'm not going to be happy about it, but it's not life-altering. If something happened to my right eye, it would be life-altering. Um, so it's maybe a little more in tune to me since I only have one good one. Um, but be careful working on equipment, working on fencing, working on all this stuff, guys. Uh, I'm not a part of the safety police. I'm the guy that came up with the following OSHA. Right? Occupational safety and... No, that's not what it means. It's the organization saving helpless assholes. That's what OSHA is, okay? So I'm not the safety police. But there is common sense safety procedures, especially dealing with mechanical work and older uh, equipment and what have you. Next question I have for you is from Gary... For, for, not for, from, but for Gary Collins on dealing with high blood pressure naturally. Uh, Gary, let's go ahead and hear from you on that one. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, again for another great question. Uh, Jeff is suffering from hypertension and was put on hypertension medication uh, quite a while ago. And uh, this hypertension is very common. Actually, in Americans, about one-third of all Americans suffer from hypertension or high blood pressure. And it's interesting that this number happens to coincide directly with the amount of Americans who are obese or suffer from metabolic syndrome, which is obesity, um, hypertension, high blood sugar. And here's the reason why. Primary reason. Reasons. Uh, most Americans do not exercise enough. They overconsume refined carbohydrates, sugar, and also sodium. So these all in combination will cause hypertension, high blood pressure. Here is why. The more carbohydrates and the more sugar that you consume, your body actually retains water. There's a hormone released when you overconsume carbohydrates, sugar, that makes you retain water. Here's why. Because it makes you retain sodium. This is what this, what this does. And, and when you retain sodium in order to dilute so you do not become toxic and can cause death is that your body then retains water to dilute the sodium. So, there you go. We have the perfect storm. Sounds like this all makes sense. And, and, and Jeff has been on a diet, on the paleo diet. He's reduced his uh, grain intake, sugar intake, carbohydrate intake. Great way to go. But his primary question is, is there any time where he can get off his high uh, hypertension or high blood pressure medication? Here's the thing. With all prescription drugs, I never recommend you do it cold turkey or without the supervision of a medical doctor. I know a lot of uh, people don't like modern medicine, modern medical doctors. You know my opinion. I believe in using both. I'm an integrative guy. I use modern medicine and also the more naturopathic side of medicine, and I use them in combination, and I have found it to be very successful for me and others. But with that, you have to understand also that prescription drugs are basically forcing, even though his doctor said that there's no side effects and that they're very safe, that is blah, 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 drug industry garbage. Prescription drugs force change within your body chemically that it would not otherwise do. That is for basically how pharmaceutical drugs work. Um, and in order for that to happen, so you go through this 
chemical alteration in your body. So if you and your body adapts to this because our bodies are highly adaptive. Now, this is why also you need to take usually someone who is prescribed one medication ends up on several medications because you have to take other prescription drugs to to dull or try and control the side effects of the original drug that you took for the original condition. So they always have side effects. And once your body, like I said, starts to adapt to this drug, you do not want to just cold turkey and get off it. Because then for for every reaction, there's an opposite and equal reaction. So remember that. So whatever your body had to do to change to adapt to that drug, you stop it immediately. Well, we call it a, a kind of a hyper rebound. So your body overreacts. It's a, a very common example is people who take proton pump inhibitors. Those are the antacid medications that are highly prescribed today because everyone has heartburn today because we eat like crap and there's all kinds of other issues. But what happens for people, they find that take these medications for long term and then they decide they don't want to take them anymore and they just, boom, cold turkey right off them. Well, guess what? Their their stomach produces a lot of acid and they're not used to it. Their digestive system's not used to it and they have this horrible, horrible acid reflux and can, and people have damaged their esophagus from this, from stopping taking these, uh, these heartburn medications, cold turkey. So, and that's a, just to give you a, a basic example of a very common drug that is considered, you know, technically to be very harmless, but trust me, those medications are very harmful long-term. They're meant for short-term fixes. Um, so f- for Jeff, I would recommend that he continue the diet. He's monitoring his blood pressure. It's coming down. Once it gets within a normal range, uh, I would talk, discuss with your doctor and ask if it is possible either to reduce the drug and and slowly to, in order to slowly taper off if he thinks that is okay. Now, in also there are some rare instances where people cannot control high blood pressure without medication. It just is. You guys have heard me talk about that too. There are certain situations where you are going to have to take pharmaceutical drugs for the rest of your life. That is just a fact of life. Now, is it very common and is it one third of the population should be doing this or 50%? No, it's very rare, but it does happen. So never, ever just on a whim, stop taking uh, medications that have been prescribed by your doctor. Just don't do it um, unless, you know, it's a life or death situation and you're having a obviously a, a huge adverse reaction to it. That's a totally different situation. So I hope that helps and sheds a little light on the hypertension issue and how, how the paleo primal lifestyle can definitely reduce that. And many people have. They've gotten their blood pressure in check. and it, But it takes a while. Remember, guys, your body, it slowly adapts. This isn't something that happens overnight. I prescribe to the 12 to 18 months before you really can see the differences and your body starts to really adapt to this new lifestyle. Again, you can hit me at contact at primalpowermethod.com if you have any questions or in the show notes. Thanks a lot, guys. Um, th- this one's a bit personal to me, too, on the, the medication thing. Now, I'll say I think there's people that they have no recourse other than medication for high blood pressure. The higher, the more likely that's the case, and the, and the, the more unlikely that they'll change their lifestyle enough to fix it, the more that's the case. However, it is not without risk and it is not without consequences to be on this medication. 
Um, I have a name in my phone I just can't delete. It's Hal Dodd. Hal was a, a good friend of mine. He was 41 years old when he died of a heart attack on his floor in the entryway of his house after he'd got home from a jog. This guy was in good shape overall, but he had high blood pressure and he went on high blood pressure medication. And he didn't like the way that it was making him feel, and he multiple times tried to get back off of it. He did it both with and without completely complying with medical advice, and I am convinced it's the reason this man at 41 years old had a heart attack, dropped dead in his house, and was dead so fast he had his cell phone in his hand and was incapable of dialing 911 and asking for help. So my suggestion is, One, I agree completely with Gary. If you are on any sort of blood pressure medication, you decide you want to get off of it, you have got to do it with extreme involvement from a medical professional. And it has to be done like in a weaning off period. It has to be done right. It has to be done in a time in your life where you can pay attention to every detail and not screw it up. So the other side of my personal opinion, right, I can't give medical advice, is when you're told you need to go on blood pressure medication, you need to be really sure that's the case. My wife was told she needed to go on blood pressure medication. She was told by her doctor if she, had, if she was advising her mother, she would have put her on the same medication. It's a very small amount, blah, 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 blah. So she went and got a blood pressure cuff, and she monitored her blood pressure for a month several times a day and kept a record of it and took it back to her doctor a month later and her doctor said, no, you don't need to be on blood pressure medication. Really? Isn't that flipping interesting? So, based on a single reading or a single pair of readings, you're ready to prescribe a life-altering, lifelong course of medication. But when you're presented with evidence of simply monitoring blood pressure You change your medical opinion. So how valid was your initial medical opinion? And I don't mean to be adversarial toward doctors that do this shit, but it's gotten down to just, oh, it's high, put, put them on this medication. And, oh, that's causing this side effect. Throw another medication at it. Throw another. And, and the, the goal of the pharmaceutical industry is to have every single person in this country on medication for their entire freaking life. Vaccinations and medications. They want to vaccinate people at my age. They want to vaccinate old people. They want to vaccinate babies. They want to, they want drugs, 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 drugs. And that's the only logical conclusion you can come to. And it's the only logical outcome when these companies are built on the concept of providing drugs for profit. And you, because you get to a point in an industry like this where you reach a point of market saturation. Meaning that the population ain't growing that much. And people have kind of come to this stasis level of, of health or unhealth. And to, to sell more, you have to create demand. You have to create demand by forcing medications where they're not necessary. You create demand by uh, life, you know, incentivizing lifestyles that require more medication, by providing shitty food to people. And you can think all of that's conspiracy theory, but what is not conspiracy theory is that when you go on these medications, it's generally accepted you'll be on them for the rest of your life. If you're not going to drop over dead today, from, from you know, talk to your doctor when, you, when they tell you to do this, monitor your blood pressure for a month and try lifestyle changes first. Think very hard before you, you make a decision that you can't change easily. Like I said, it's personal to me. I still have Hal's name in my phone. Somebody has his number now. Somebody somehow ended up out of the random happenstance of the universe one day calling me. 
And I got a call from a man who had been dead for two and a half years. Um, that was kind of weird. I didn't answer it. It went to voicemail, and the person didn't leave a message. Uh, so I never call it back, but I just can't delete him because he's a friend. And he's still at least there. Another thing it makes me think of, though, that's totally unrelated to this question but is interesting, is that because of social media, people's legacy stays around a hell of a lot longer than it used to. He still has a uh, Facebook page, and he gets a hell of a lot of uh, wishes to the beyond on his birthday. Something to think about, and what you're leaving behind is your legacy in these social media outlets, especially young people that take some really stupid pictures and post them sometimes. I'm just saying. Anyway, next one we have here is for Darby Simpson on grass height in relation to raising pastured poultry. Darby, take it away. Hello there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week I have a question from Mike. And he is wanting to know what the ideal height of pasture is for tractoring a small number of birds on his homestead. Uh, Mike is raising about 20 Cornish cross chickens in the spring and the fall for his own freezer. And uh, he mentions here that he's got the ability to somewhat manage the area with a mower if he needs to. So, again, he's just wanting to know uh, what is too tall or what's too short and, um, you know, what kind of uh, greens they will eat, what they like, and, you know, what the quality of the grasses should be like. So, Mike, uh, thanks for sending in your question. Happy to answer this for you. And I can tell you that um, what you're doing here is exactly what I had to do when I first started raising poultry. Uh, we were raising them uh, in, in, a, in a pretty large meadow, uh, which today we use for cattle. But um, the grass at times would get out of hand, and I would actually have to take a lawn tractor out there and mow the grass down so that it didn't get too tall. So uh, what we like to see, uh, whether you're using lawnmower and, or in the case of what I'm doing now is using cows, uh, we like to see a maximum or a minimum height of about four to six inches. And typically um, when I take my cattle off of the grass, I, I want it about four to six inches tall so that the grass will come back pretty quickly. And usually that's what I have to work with when I move the chickens into an area. Now, that's not to say that the grass can't be a little bit taller uh, it, it could be as tall as eight to 10 inches, uh, maybe, maybe 12 inches if it's not real thick, uh, depending on the time of the year and, and what kind of grasses you have out there. Uh, you didn't say what kind of chicken tractor you're going to have, but with my big heavy chicken tractors, when, when I'm pulling those from paddock to paddock, they'll actually kind of knock those grasses over. A lot of times the taller stuff, they'll just kind of break them off and, and snap them over and, and knock them down out of the way. So Depending on what kind of chicken tractor you have, uh, you, you may find that you don't need to, to do a whole lot of mowing unless it gets really tall and, and really thick. Now, um, I, sh I should warn you that, you know, as it gets warmer, you're, you're definitely going to want the grass to be shorter. Um, chickens have got to have really good ventilation. And that's one of the reasons we went away from the Salton style pen and to the hoop house style that we use nowadays. Um, and, uh, you know, w when that grass gets really tall and thick in the summer and we had them in the Salton style chicken tractors, boy, that's just a recipe for disaster. Uh, they, they literally would suffocate because they didn't have good enough ventilation. So and you said you're doing the spring and the fall. I commend you for that. You're trying to stay out of the heat of the summer, which with Cornish Cross is definitely makes your life easier from a management standpoint. But uh, just something to keep in mind there that uh, if if you have 
you know, uh, some pretty warm, particularly warm and humid weather on, on the, uh, the horizon <clears throat> as your birds are out on pasture, particularly if they're older, if they're five, six weeks old or older, you're definitely, definitely going to want to make sure that that grass is shorter. Now, uh, what kind of things can you seed for them? Um, I don't really have any experience sowing annuals, but I can tell you that, uh, you, you would be well advised, uh, to sow some legumes. Um, the chickens really like alfalfa and clover. That's what they really go after every time we move them into a fresh paddock. Uh, they love eating on those things and obviously those are good sources of protein. It's going to cut down on your feed requirements. Uh, you'd have to do some research on, on some annuals, but anything that's, that's, uh, quick growing, um, that if you're going to try and hit that same area again later in the, in the year would be okay. But I, I would tell you to, you know, focus on perennials and, and just start to build that up in your pasture area. So that as you do this each year, spring and fall to put meat into your own freezer, you're going to start building up a nice bank of perennial legumes out there that uh, the chickens are going to eat. Um, they will pick at some of the other grasses, but when I move them, what, again, what I see is, man, they just, they really go after the alfalfa. Uh, in fact, if you wanted to, uh, there's a short video uh, on our Facebook page, our Simpson Family Farm Facebook page, showing where I just moved the chickens into a new paddock. And these are pretty young chicks. They're only about four weeks old. And they're just annihilating this alfalfa plant that's uh, in the middle of their chicken tractor. So uh, those would be my suggestions there, Mike. Um, good question. Glad you sent it in. Hope that you find this uh, answer helpful. Uh, if you have any other additional questions, you can feel free to uh, shoot me an email. I'll be happy to answer it. Uh, for those of you who are interested in raising your own pasture poultry like Mike here is doing, uh, I would encourage you to check out the Grass-Fed Life podcast. That is a, a podcast that I'm doing weekly with Diego Footer of Permaculture Voices. And um, there's quite a few episodes out now. I think we're up to like episode seven. Uh, but there's two or three full-length episodes on just on pastured poultry. And we, we've had a lot of questions coming in on pastured poultry, so I know we're going to circle back around and, and do more episodes on that. But if you're interested in raising your own chickens, I, I think that if you if you listen to that, you, you'd probably gain a lot of knowledge and save yourself a lot of uh, heartache and a lot of trials that I personally had to go through. And uh, you might just learn something that would make your life easier. So head on over to Permaculture Voices and check that out. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about me, you can do so by checking out my website at darbysimpson.com. There are a ton of uh, free blog articles out there on all things related to raising and marketing uh, pasture-based meats. I also do offer one-on-one -on -one consultations for those of you who are interested in going deeper. If you are a TSP MSB member, you do get a 10% discount on those consultations. As always, Jack, thanks for sending me a question. Everyone out there in TSP land, have a wonderful weekend and happy homesteading. Okay, our last council member we're going to hear from today, we haven't heard from in quite a while. She was on the road for a month, so she took a month off. This is Erica Strauss. She's just fantastic. And this question has to do with, you know, storing up bulk inexpensive items for sanitation and cleaning in your home should you ever get into a long-term period where you can't afford to just go out and buy cleaning products because uh, they do add up in cost. And keeping everything clean is uh, really important. And the worse situation you get in, the more important sanitation becomes. So, Erica, with that in mind, what say you? 
Hello, TSP. This is Erica from Northwest Edible. It's been a while. I've been traveling the last couple of weeks, but it's great to be back home and back with you guys again. So today I am calling in to answer a really interesting question from Cindy. Cindy asked me the following. She says, what five cleaning and hygiene supplies would you stockpile in bulk for a long-term deflationary period when you might lose your job? I'm interested in how you might clean, sanitize, and prevent disease in a situation where disruptions could happen and money gets so tight it cries. What might you acquire in large bulk to carry you through animal husbandry, dirty laundry, butchering, etc. when you live way off the beaten path? Such a great question because Cindy is right. Good home and personal hygiene is related to overall health and comfort. And the tougher times get, the more important it is to maintain that health and comfort proactively. Now, as it turns out, I do actually stock home and personal care items in bulk because I make most of my cleaners. It's far more cost effective for me to buy the classics like baking soda and vinegar in bulk. And for the most part, with very few exceptions like oil, oils and bleach, the stuff that you use for home and personal care has a very, very long natural shelf life. So really, why not keep some of it back stock? Now, in terms of my top five, let's start with the absolute most important thing. And this might not be what you'd expect, but clean potable water. That's the number one most important cleaning and hygiene item. Without clean water, maintaining proper hygiene and good health are going to be pretty much impossible. Your soap, your scrubs, your sanitizers, all of those are of very little importance if you don't have fresh, pure water. So that's the first thing. If you haven't dialed in at least a few different ways for how you're going to keep the water flowing to your homestead no matter what, figure that out now. It's great to store water, and I do it, but unless you have huge cisterns, stored water is an emergency stopgap. Long term, you want to make sure you have a way to get, filter, and use enough water to drink, bathe, cook, scrub down tables, use for butchery, and dilute cleaners, all that stuff. And besides, all by itself, water is a pretty decent cleaner. So water, and enough of it, and pure enough. And that's the number one most important thing. You might want to look at various forms of water capture, purification, and filtration. Water filtration is a topic I know Jack has covered, so I'll let you dig through the archives for specifics, but this is definitely the most important thing to keep your homestead clean, sanitized, and running well. You got to have a lot of water. Okay, so number two on my list for this scenario that Cindy is describing would be chlorine bleach, sodium hypochlorite, plain old Clorox. I actually have some pretty mixed feelings about chlorine bleach. Um, it's powerful, corrosive stuff, and it's not at all good for you. But it's probably the best value broad-spectrum disinfectant in the entire world. I think maybe some of the problems with bleach stem from the fact that it's used kind of thoughtlessly, and I think it's used thoughtlessly because it's so common. Uh, if you use bleach at too high a concentration or if you get sloppy with it, you can damage your surfaces or fabrics, you can give yourself a chemical burn, you can inhale some really nasty fumes. And of course, as we all know, bleach should never, ever, ever be mixed with other cleaners, especially acidic cleaners like ammonia or vinegar. But Cindy and the rest of the TSP community, you guys are going to be smart and you're going to use bleach with appropriate care and at appropriate dilutions. 
Now, one concern for preppers is that uh, when you store bleach that is at fairly typical concentrations, it's about 5 to 8%, depending on the type of bleach you're buying, the sodium hypochlorite tends to degrade relatively quickly into salt and water. Now, salt and water are great, but they don't make for good sanitizers. So this breakdown will happen whether you open the bottle or not. Uh, storage temperatures over 70 degrees will hasten the breakdown. The people at the Clorox company say you can get six months to a year from the date of manufacture for a bottle of their bleach. And uh, at least the Clorox bleach, uh, the date of manufacture will be stamped on every bottle. So uh, take a look for that. So this is a prep where it is really important to date and rotate FIFO as we say first in first out luckily bleach is very cheap a gallon is about three dollars where i live and with proper dilution i guess the average active homestead could make that last for at least six months so let's say you're in for about 50 cents a month in bleach costs well what does that investment get you well Bleach kills a lot of things you don't want on the surfaces of your home, like mold and fungal spores, nasty bacteria like Listeria, Staphylococcus, Streptococcus, E. coli, and Salmonella. Uh, it kills the viruses that cause flu and the common cold. You can use it to disinfect your cutting boards and butchering tables and food prep areas. And when you do so, you dramatically reduce the risk of cross-contamination. What that all means is you're less likely to get sick. Of course, bleach is also great at lightening and getting stains out of white fabrics, but in the situation that Cindy describes where money is super tight and we're looking at possibly a job loss, you know, stains are really not that much of my concern. My concern at this point is preventing disease through proper sanitation, and this is where bleach is just so good. I have to make it number two on my list. Okay, moving on to number three. Number three on the list is soap or lye to make soap, depending on your situation. Cindy, you indicated that you would be butchering animals. If those animals are hogs or steer, you'll hopefully have a big abundance of lard or tallow. And if this is your situation, it will be very cost-effective for you to make your own basic bar soap for general-purpose cleaning. Soap is pretty neat. It has an interesting chemical makeup that allows one end of the soap molecule to bond to oil while the other end bonds to water. And you know oil and water don't mix, but soap can kind of get in there and mix it up. So while water can't penetrate a greasy stain, soapy water can. So when it comes to an all-purpose cleaning agent, everything from dishes to your hair uh, can be cleaned with just a basic bar of soap. Now, making your own soap is very simple. You need fat, you need water, you need lye, and you need time. The lye reacts with the fat in a fairly complicated chemical reaction called saponification and transforms the lye and fat mixture into this lovely, totally new thing that we call soap. Assuming you'll have access to trim fat from your animals, all you're going to need to keep on hand to make as much soap as you'll probably ever need is a couple, three, four bottles of 100% granular sodium hydroxide lye. This is typically sold as drain cleaner at most hardware stores, but as long as it's 100% sodium hydroxide, it's the right stuff. These things, these bottles, they're not very expensive, and as long as you keep your lye dry and you really really need to keep it dry. It will last for years. 
Now, when it comes to safety, you don't want to mess around with sodium hydroxide. Lye can really mess you up if you get it on your skin or in your eyes. So do follow safety precautions, wear gloves and goggles while making soap, and keep your kids and pets well away from the process. The last thing anyone wants is for their kid to reach up and grab a glass of lye water and be permanently blinded. So... Be very careful. But with that caveat, you know, it's really not an intimidating process. Once you've done it a few times, you're going to be really confident. You want to keep wearing your gloves and your goggles, but you will feel very comfortable with the process. So if you haven't made soap before, I would really recommend you make it now before times get difficult so you can get comfortable with the process. Like I say, it's not hard, but like any of these skills, it's just nice to know what you're doing before you really need that skill. Uh, if you want to do kind of a practice run, you can use cheap supermarket lard. Um, it's often sold as manteca, and you can do a test batch of soap. I cover soap making basics in my book, The Hands-On Home. And if you guys and Jack want, I can talk in detail about the cold process soap making method some other Friday. Um, but for Cindy, there are some really great YouTube videos you can watch as well to get a feel of the process if you're a visual learner. Some really good free re- resources online. But the important thing to know for now is that there's a science to soap making and you must get the ratio of lye to fat right in order to make a safe, fully, properly saponified soap. Basically, we don't want a situation where there's some leftover lye in your soap that could burn you. So these ratios are really important and because of that, I never make a batch of soap without running my soap formula through an online soap calculator first. There's several of these online, these soap calculators. They're free to use and Uh, Any of the first couple ones that pop up on Google when you search for soap calculator will be reliable. Once you find a recipe you really like, keep a printed out hard copy of the formula for future use, especially if you expect your internet connection in the future might not be as reliable. And then one other thing about soap that's kind of nice is that you can barter with it. If folks know that you make a great all-purpose natural bar soap, you might be able to trade that for little luxuries that you can't produce for yourself or possibly get people to give you their own trim fat from hogs and uh, steer that they've slaughtered in exchange for part of the soap that you're making with that fat. Less cost-effective, but, you know, fine from a cleaning standpoint, would simply be to have a commercial liquid or bar detergent on hand, to just buy something and stock it. If you do have access to lard or tallow, however, the DIY soap route will be a very natural, intuitive way to use that trim fat that's not food quality. Now, number four on my list is white vinegar. This is a homestead essential for so many reasons. We use it in cooking, for pickling, and other food preservation as an early season weed killer and for both home and body care. Vinegar is typically a 5% solution of acetic acid, and it's this reliable acidity that makes it so useful. Acidic cleaners like vinegar are excellent at cleaning alkaline messes. Think hard water buildup, soap scum, and mineral deposits. And this is why vinegar-based cleaners tend to really shine in the bathroom, because this is a room most likely to see mineral buildup. Diluted vinegar is also a great natural hair conditioner and skin toner. The acid helps to smooth and shine hair and helps to return skin to a healthy, slightly acidic pH. 
But one tip, if you use natural soap and not a commercial detergent, do be very careful about mixing soap and vinegar. I see this all the time. People think that um, mixing everything together will make a DIY cleaner more effective, but that doesn't always end up being the case. First, the alkaline soap and the acidic vinegar actually tend to make each other less effective because they work to neutralize each other uh, from a pH perspective. And second, if you are using a natural soap, like your own homemade soap or something like Dr. Bronner's, if you add enough acid to uh, a liquid soap, you can actually undo the saponification of the soap. So you add vinegar in there with your Dr. Bronner's, and what happens is your soap turns into a greasy mess that looks kind of like curdled cream because that uh, saponification process has actually been undermined by the acid. Okay, last on my list, number five is washing soda. Washing soda is not baking soda, so it's important everyone gets that. Not baking soda, washing soda. Baking soda is also great, and I have bags and bags of it in my garage, but considering Cindy's question, I want to draw folks' attention to a more powerful alkaline cleaner. Washing soda is sodium carbonate. It's also called soda ash sometimes, and it's a strongly alkaline cleaner and a superb water softener. And these characteristics make washing soda extremely good at boosting the effectiveness of soap and breaking down grease and oily grime. For this reason, it's a staple ingredient in most DIY laundry soaps. But washing soda has a ton of uses around the home beyond laundry. I use it to clean my oven, stove, grill, and vent hood when the grease builds up over time. And I refresh my patio in the late spring by taking a bucket of hot soapy water and adding in washing soda and scrubbing the patio down with that. Uh, you can also use washing soda with just a little bit of soap as a wall or floor cleaner. It's basically the ultimate all-purpose cleaner for heavier-duty cleaning situations. And while I've never personally tried this, apparently washing soda can be added to the scald water for chicken or duck plucking, and the grease-cutting aspects of the washing soda help that hot water better penetrate the feathers, uh, so that makes the scald and pluck a little bit easier. Okay, guys, those are my top five home care items to hoard for potential tough times. Number six probably would have been vodka, by the way. An excellent solvent and wound sanitizer, very useful in food preservation, highly barterable, and you can use it to clean your windows. Well, all right, guys, this has been Erica from Northwest Edible Life for the Expert Council. If you have any questions about cheap and effective home care during tough times or any time, just leave a comment after today's show notes, and I will do my best to answer. Take care. It's great to chat with you guys again, and I will talk to you in a couple of weeks. She's always awesome, man. She does a great job. I'm really uh, fortunate to have Erica on the uh, on the Expert Council. Um I want to finish up with something that we've talked a lot about, but you know more on what I call the rise of the machines. And I'm not talking about Terminator, though it will terminate a lot of jobs. And, and we, there's a story out this week that's uh, at a scale that I don't think people comprehend. And since it happened in China, people will think it doesn't really matter to us, but um, it actually matters a lot to us. And, and the fact that it's happened in China is a huge, huge indicator of how much more of this is really coming because labor over there costs a hell of a lot less than it does here. Uh, a listener sent this uh, in, and we'll snip it. I was able to, through an exact math search on Google, find the actual article. It's on thehustle.co, and it's called Welcome to the Machine. Here are our top stories for Tuesday. 
Humans just lost a relatively big battle. Foxconn, the manufacturing company that builds iPhones and other electronic devices for companies like Samsung and Microsoft, just replaced 60,000 human workers with robots, and the factory is weirdly proud of it. The Foxconn factory has re reduced its employee strength from 110,000 to 50,000 thanks to the introduction of robots. It has tasted success in reduction of labor costs, said Zhu Yolin, uh, the factory's department head, considering this is the same factory that installed safety nets to prevent employee suicide. It's not all that shocking that Yulin would call 60,000 people losing their jobs a success. Brace yourselves for more of this. Automation in the workforce is no longer on the horizon. It's here, and that could mean widespread unemployment. According to the former CEO of McDonald's USA, Ed Resney, it is cheaper and more efficient to buy a robot costing $35,000 and hire a human for $15 an hour, the increased minimum wage many Americans have called for. Plus, robots become more advanced. They'll be able to handle increasingly complex jobs, so mass automation won't be limited to factory floors and fast food restaurants. We're, welcome to the new normal. Speaking of layoffs, Microsoft just cut 1,850 jobs in its smartphone sector uh, just two years after it bought Nokia devices and services business for $7.1 billion. These layoffs come less than a year after Microsoft laid off 7,800 of its staff from the Nokia acquisition, and just a week after, the only remaining part of the business, feature phone, was sold for $350 million. So clearly, this is the last step in correcting the former CEO Steve Ballmer's ill-fated attempt to take on Apple and Samsung in the uh, smartphone space. Um, th this stuff is is just going to keep coming. I mean, I want you to think about the money that was lost there in in that next piece that that kind of follow up piece on it. It bought the the phone the company for seven point one billion, uh, laid off seventy eight hundred, and then cut another eighteen hundred jobs, and then sold what was left of it for three hundred fifty million. In common core math or not, you can work out that that's not a profitable move by you know one of the biggest corporations on the planet. And here's what I'm going to tell you that's kind of shocking to some people. It's because Microsoft is using outdated technology. Microsoft is a product of, of the 70s, and so is Apple. Apple's adapted and moved forward. Microsoft has tried to get in the game instead of becoming the game. And... That's kind of a different thing altogether, but something to think about with technological evolution. See, that's the thing that people have begun to look at the automation revolution as though it's something apart from the technological revolution. It's not. There are, there are two ways of seeing the same evolution. The automation evolution is the technology evolution, and the technology evolution causes the evolution of automation. And we're reaching a point where we're not going to go backwards. We're not going to go backwards. We are going to have autonomous vehicles within a decade. Um, it's, it's going to happen. We're going to have autonomous vehicles that are owned by Uber within a decade. That when you want an Uber, a vehicle with no person in it comes and gets you and takes you where you want to go. I know that sounds like, you know, wasn't that pretty much in um, Total Recall, the first one? One with Arnold Schwarzenegger in it. You know, there was like a robot driving a little cart around or whatever. There's no need for a robot to be behind the wheel. I think they might think about doing that just because it make people feel better. But the car is what does the driving. The robot's in the car. 
And even the, 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 the concept of developing software and things like that, it's going, this is the, the real thing that's going to be one of the major disruptors in the world. We are going to reach a point where it becomes easier and easier to code. In fact, we will reach a point where we don't really need to code to do what coders do today. So even these very high-tech jobs right now, one of the best things you could go into is learning how to code and develop and program. We'll get to a point where you'll be able to advance programming without advanced programming knowledge. Just like we got to a point where using things like WYSIWYGs and AJAX, we can design websites with no design understanding. Right? We have to understand design flow and what have you, but anybody can make a good-looking website today. They just built technology that lets you do it. So what has been a saving grace in the tech sector has been not the people that use the technology and implement the technology, but people that actually build the technology. Well, it'll get easier and easier to where people are able to make technology do whatever they want for themselves. I know that sounds like it's out there, but it's really not. And we are going to see this continued erosion of jobs. And that's a major disruption for the economy. And uh, I've read several books on this, and, and a lot of them end up leading down that road of what they call you know universal basic income or something like that. One book I read, it was something, Lights in the Tunnel. I'll see if I can find these two books uh, that I read and put them in the show notes for you. I think one's called Lights in the Tunnel. It was written back in 2009 and talks about things like you know basically paying people to read books. So at least they're, they're getting smarter. <laughs> and it's real easy to kind of you know poo-poo that shit as being, you know, liberal socialism nonsense of stealing from producers and giving to consumers. but And I'm not saying that's the way we should do it. Don't get me wrong. But there's a legitimate question that gets asked if we follow this type of thing to its logical um, conclusion. As, as technology evolves to where more and more functions of society can be performed by computers and robots and automation, And let's face it, many of the jobs that this will replace are not jobs people really want to do. They do them because they need money. They do them because they need to be employed. They do them because they need something to do. But I would venture that more, at least half, probably more like 70% of people, if they were given the option of not having to go work their job anymore, if somebody said, this is what we'll do, we'll, we'll, we'll give you your income on the condition you don't take another job, Right, uh, but but you you can go do whatever you want. You can go have a hobby. You can go have a micro business. You can do whatever you want, but you just don't. You're not an employee anymore. And if you made seventy thousand dollars a year, we'll give you seventy thousand dollars a year for the rest of your life to not work. That if they were twenty five, they'd say yes. If they were forty five, they'd say yes. If they were fifty five, they'd say woohoo. Right? I'm not have to worry about social security anymore. They wouldn't work. I'm not saying it's practical. I'm just saying they wouldn't work. They wouldn't do it. I haven't asked how many of you, if I replace, if I'm willing to replace your income, or if your income's too low to live a decent life, I would give you an income that would be enough to live a decent life. And not just decent, but a fulfilling life. One you'd be happy about. You could afford to go on vacations. You could afford to, to go out to eat. You could afford to go do your hobbies. You could, if I was willing to give you that money on an annual basis, Or you could keep your job. How many of you would keep your job? So when we start actually attacking the technology and saying, well, it's, it's eliminating human, you know, it's eliminating jobs, it's hurting people, we shouldn't do it. It's not very logical, really. 
to say that we should keep people in jobs they don't want to do just for the purpose of them having an income and having someplace to go and something to do when they really don't want to be there. So what if we can eliminate 50% of jobs? Look, I think that's I think that's actually low. So 50% of jobs are just gone. That's a lot of people with nothing to do. How do we handle that? What do we do with them? Well, they'll go out and find something else. No, they won't. You understand that automation is going to grow, harvest, and process food. All right, we already took farmers down to almost nothing. Now, will there be people with little farms and stuff like I have? Sure, but this is the those are the niche, those are the boutique. The mass production of food, the, the human element of that is going to become a tenth of what it is today. Automation, the roads we still need, will build roads. And take so it's not you're going to need anybody to do it. Manufacturing pfft, Packaging, shipping, all of it. Right now, Amazon's hiring people left and right. $14 to $15 an hour. Good money. But they're working on technology to break down and need less and less people. Because right now, even in a crappy economy, it's hard to find people that want to do the work. So if we take away all of these productive things that people have done... And there's only so many things we can replace them with. What would people do? I mean, let's look at every sector. If we have autonomous vehicles that can drive themselves, you know what job that sucks, but a lot of people do because it pays decent? Garbage man. Well, if we can end up with an autonomous garbage truck and, an, and, and, and a, a mechanized and automated system that sorts garbage and recycles it and makes things out of it instead of filling up landfills with it, even that job's at risk. It's not at risk tomorrow if that's your job and you drive around in a garbage truck, listen to me, don't don't freak out, but I mean, it'd probably be one of the last things we replace, but eventually we'll even replace that. So what the hell won't we replace? Doctors? You think doctors are safe here? You're not paying attention. For a couple reasons. One, the majority of people that go to doctors today don't need to go see a doctor. I asked my wife when she was a nurse, now all these parents were bringing their kids, they're all on chip and Medicaid and crap like that, for all these checkups and sniffles. And What percentage of people that came into your office do you honestly believe needed to see a doctor? And she said about 30%. So even of the people going to doctors, only 30% on, on average need to go to see a doctor, at least out of that segment. And it may be lower in others, but there's a lot of people who go to the doctor for all kinds of shit they don't need a doctor for. They've been conditioned to go. There's going to be more and more automation in diagnostics and determining who actually needs a higher level of diagnostics. Mistakes will be made. Sometimes they'll be good, but the drug companies are going to push this. Because instead of sending a drug rep around to convince your doctor to write a prescription, they'll just program a machine to always have the same response. Interesting, isn't it? What are we going to have for people to do? I'm not Again, I'm not talking about tomorrow. I'm talking, let's say, 20 years out. How many jobs will we eliminate in the next 20 years without replacing them? What, what do we have all of these people do? If the garbage man gig is not even available, how do we handle that? Do we pay them to exist? Do, do we 
Do we create a society? Is that possible? History has shown it to be a really bad idea, and history has shown it to work out in general, where there's a small group of haves that murder the shit out of have-nots and tell everybody they need to be equal. There's a lot of dystopian looks at futures that look like that. But what we've never actually had in time of history was a society where it was technologically even possible for the majority of people alive to not be necessary. It doesn't mean there's nothing they can do of value, but they're not necessary. I mean, right now, if 50% of people that have jobs just didn't go to work for a month, it would grind our economy and our systems to a halt. People would begin to starve. They'd be without power. Just half, well, on everybody. But what we're talking about is getting to a point where those 50% no longer are needed. They just don't need them. They could quit and no one would care. No one would notice. And I ask you today, how many people could quit their jobs and no one would really notice and no one would really care? That they have jobs that are a facade. They're not really necessary. How important is a receptionist at the average office? Is it there because it's an expectation or because it's truly a need? Could you not have at an office a computer screen who you are there to see and it, it tells you whether they're available or not and the person could say they're not available just like they tell the receptionist? And if you needed to know who to talk to for something, the, the machine would actually do a better job of being a gatekeeper and keeping you away. That's a big part of what receptionists do. I'm not putting you down if you're a receptionist, but don't tell me I can't replace your job. Until now we have the receptionist replaced, but how many people in that company are necessary? I'll tell you what, in any company with more than two dozen people in it, there's a couple people in there you could get rid of tomorrow, and no one would really give a shit. They might miss them personally, but they don't really need them. There's all kinds of government jobs like that, where departments get assigned a certain number of headcount, and we don't need them. So what happens when you start eliminating all of these positions? What do we have these people do? I'm not pretending to have the answer, by the way. I'm not, I'm not saving up some big magical answer here. It's a quandary. But as one as a species, we better start thinking about. Because if we don't come up with some sort of a plan, that leads to really bad places too. You have enough people unemployed with no money, and then they start looking at the people who are still employed, who will be doing very well, by the way, and they start looking at the people that actually own all of this shit that will be doing very, very well until such time as the other side breaks. See, it's everybody's going to have a problem in the end because you have all these factories that are automated that spit all this shit out and you want people to buy it, but half the people don't have jobs. Well, who the hell are you going to sell it to? You sell it to the half of the people that still have jobs. But as the technology actually evolves to the point where we have things like 3D printers in our home, And instead of going to Amazon and buying something, you go to Amazon and buy a pattern and it prints it out in your house. And don't think that shit's not going to happen. And don't think it's going to always be this little printer that makes a plastic thing. Don't think we're not going to have manufacturing like that available to individuals that uses multiple materials and can, and can build and construct complex items of multiple different pieces assembled together. Don't think that's not going to happen, because it is. So again, I ask you, serious question, what do we do? Now, you and I, we don't really have to answer that question, most of us, people my age and older, because we're only going to see the beginning of this. 
But the next generation and the one coming up, the one yet to be born, they're going to be smack in the middle of the most amazing technological evolution that humankind has ever even conceived of. We're talking 50 years out now. But don't we owe it to them to start thinking about a path for them? There's a lot of pain and misery between here and there. Or there's a potential for all of these great innovations to be held back and prevented. And that doesn't make sense to me either. That we should not have this technology. I mean, if we, if we take that approach, then we wouldn't have combines to do harvesting of grains, and there'd still be guys going through the field with the side so they could have a job. That doesn't make sense. But in, in that capacity, there were so many other things for people to eventually do. I don't think we have a lot of things for people to do lining up. I don't. And we have a whole ton of people, billions, in parts of the world that are unemployed already, that live in developing and underdeveloped nations and economies that are just sitting there. And they would do something if they had something to do, but they have nothing to do. How long can we run this system this way? What radical transformation is necessary? Just something to think about. Just something to think about. Anyway, if you like this show and the work that I do, consider becoming a member of the Support Brigade. You can do that by going to survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members to learn more. You'll find that you get discounts from lots of companies where you can buy lots of stuff that you're probably buying anyway and it'll pay for your membership. You'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced all the way back to episode 01, a convenient Convenient uh, downloadable zip files. You'll get over $200 worth of free ebooks right away and a lot of other great stuff just by becoming a member. $50 a year or $5 a month. That's 18.3 cents an episode if you do the math. And uh, if you think the show's worth a couple dimes and you're not a member yet, consider becoming a member. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you do qualify for a discount. Just email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences before or not after you join. I'll get you that discount code to save you money on a service that already saves you lots of money. Next up, if you want to support the show and uh, you don't want to be a member or you're already a member and want to do more, TSPAZ, that's right, TSPAZ.com, TSPAZ.com. Go there whenever you want to shop on Amazon. And uh, once you're there, just shop on Amazon like you always do. Get your stuff. We get credit for the sales. That's all there is to it. It doesn't cost you any money. It doesn't take you any more time. tspaz.com actually has one letter less than amazon.com in it. Easier to remember if you ask me. tspaz, come on, it's cool. That's why I came up with it. Actually, I didn't even realize it was tspaz. A listener pointed it out to me. I'm like TSP for the Survival Podcast, AZ for Amazon. Put together, didn't even realize, tspaz.com. All right, so... Uh, We really appreciate you guys using that to shop on Amazon. It, it doesn't take a lot of effort from you, but it does a lot of good to help us with uh, continuing to develop an income from the show so that we can continue to provide it to you. Um, next up, I want to remind you about the TSP Business Directory. You can uh, find members of this community to do business with. We're going to have to build new economies like we just talked about. Uh, I don't know what the future uh, holds, but I think more and more entrepreneurship is, is the kind of thing we need to be doing and creating localized micro and, and macro economies, micro economies in our own communities, and macro economies in what I call virtual nations. And I consider our, our podcast, our community, to be a virtual nation in many ways. We have a common ideology. We have a common belief system. We, we have common values. And even though we have a lot of disagreements, the core values of liberty and independence and self-reliance and self-sufficiency 
uh, I think reach everybody that's part of this community. If, if not, I don't think people stay for very long if you don't, if you don't value those things. So you should do business with other people that value those things. And today's supporting member of the directory is Permaculture Trees. Permaculture Trees is another business born out of the TSP community. They plan to add a new tree to their store each year. Right now they are offering the Pink Silk Tree, which is chosen for its ability to regenerate poor soils, coppice, or pollard for mulch, and provide nitrogen. They're offering TSP listeners a 10% discount. Search Permaculture Trees in the TSP directory to order your trees today, and I will have a link to them in the show notes, permaculturetrees.com, another business right out of the TSP community. I, I can't tell you every time I hear that how happy that makes me. Because I think in the, the coming disruption that we're going to have, it's going to be those that build businesses that are able to best navigate these waters. Even if that business eventually doesn't work out in the new economy, the skill set of knowing how to manage, run a business, how to create value, how to transfer value to others, it's invaluable. It's one of the best skills you could develop. And if you're doing that and you've got a company, consider being in the directory. You can get your business listed in the directory for as little as five bucks a year. And frankly, the only reason we charge the five bucks a year is it made the spam get get stopped shit cold the day we did it. That that ended all spam submissions. And before we charged the five bucks, we were getting more spam submissions than legitimate submissions to the uh, directory. So that that's why we even charge the five bucks. There are other options to be more prominently featured and things like that uh, as well. Once you sign up at your five dollar level, if you want to participate in those. Closing up today, I, I picked a song that. Uh, I think fits well with this rise of machines and understanding how far we've come, how fast, really fast. Um, I think I've played this one for you before. Again, it's called Flesh and Bone from Jimmy Buffett. And it, it's got some interesting lyrics in it I'll point out to you before uh, we get uh, to hear it. Um, this one's interesting to me. We made it nearly 20 centuries, a bunch of monkeys with PhDs spun a web of communications, but it's all still a tangle to me. I can't tell the spiders from the dangling flies and moths. I feel like some outsider who seems to have his wires all crossed. And, of course, he's talking about the World Wide Web, right? And being a guy that's a little bit older, going, how do we, how do, we do all this stuff? I don't really get it. The chorus of the song is, and this, this song was written in the late 90s, Okay, and it gets dated when you hear another line here in a second. But I can't fax you my love. I can't email you my heart. I can't see your face in cyberspace. I don't know where to start. I'm light years behind the age they call stone. I'm a carbon-based caveman, honey, just flesh and bone. So he's, he's naming all these technologies used to communicate, like email. We still use email in cyberspace, right? But fax. Faxes still get used. There's electronic fax services out there. There's there's some reason some businesses use faxes. One I've learned with dealing with brokers is uh, the, the brokerage houses won't let them do shit by email anymore, so they do fax because the email gets recorded, right? Uh, so they might send you prospectus or something or a, a, a communication by fax. But that's like the only reason I think anybody really needs to be using fax anymore. We, we can send any document by email. Faxes, Stone Age. Light years behind the age they call stone. See, he wasn't talking about the actual stone age. He was saying, for everybody around him, he feels like he's way behind what they consider the stone age. Well, this isn't even 20 years, folks. You know? 
this isn't even 20 years, and, and, and a technology that was uh, considered very valid is almost completely useless. Now, we live in the age of computers. This is, again, this is the 90s. They run everything in the world. And I'm a little behind on this technical climb, and you are an internet girl, right? <laughs> I've got words, but no processor. I've got feelings, but I don't know DOS. Ooh. DOS, huh? So I've just got to go back to basics, of course, basic computer program language, and try to get my point across. Desperate for a glimpse of the future, we use crystals and cards and dice. And that Y2K is coming our way. They're talking about some worldly strife. It's time for simpler options. It's time to formulate a big plan B. So if your hard dive does, does crash, I've got some Krugerrand stashed. Come on and sail away with me. Krugerrands, of course, are gold coins. I ain't no clone. I'm just flesh and bone trying to connect with you. I ain't no clone. I'm just fresh and bone. Let's run away to Timbuktu. So in the end, it's kind of like if this technology all goes to haywire, we'll just run away. But where are you going to really run away to? How many Krugerrands and how long will they last in a situation where technology has really taken over? What what adaptations are necessary? And for those of us that are older and kind of like, we've had enough of it, how do we handle these continuing disruptions? I mean, I look at it this way. People think I'm some kind of internet marketing master because of the success of this show, but I'm still using Facebook and Twitter. Your grandma's on Facebook. Facebook's out of date. It's still powerful, but, I mean, there's even technologies I should be leveraging that I'm not. I'm in my 40s. And I, it makes me understand why people are resistant to it that are in their 60s and 70s. Well, guys, when we're at the height of this automation revolution, many of us are going to be 50 and 60 years old. How are we going to handle it? What are we going to do about it? Here's the good news. There's always something that can be done. The human mind is amazing. And our capacity for adaptation and evolution as a species is amazing. And I think for all of the negative, there'll be a lot of positive. And I think there'll be a lot of opportunity. And I think there'll even be an awful lot of fun. And there's nothing I think that's more fun than good music. So please enjoy this show. Enjoy your weekend. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. If men came from Venus And women came from Mars Then I'd be lunching with my boyfriends While you girls talked about cigars But that's not how it happened Evolution took a different turn We may be creatures with some unique features, but we still got a lot to learn. We've made it nearly 20 centuries, a bunch of monkeys with PhDs. Spun a web of communications, but it's all still a tangle to me. Spiders from the dangling flies and moths. 
some outsider Who seems to have his wires all crossed I can't patch you, my love I can't keep me my heart I can't see your face in cyberspace I don't know where to start I'm like years behind From the age they call stone I'm a carbon-based caveman Honey, just flesh and bone yes, yes, yes. I ain't a clone, I'm just flesh and bone Trying to connect with you yes, yes. Come on, run away with your cave. Don't worry. 
I don't buy it. I might nibble a little bit. Here, let me get that door. Ladies, 